Lord, we lay this time before you right now as a sacrifice. I know there are things that we would rather be doing. And I know sometimes tonight we come in on a Sunday night and the last thing we want to do is spend an entire hour dealing with geology and science. And Lord, I know that I would have rather spent my day doing something else. But there are people, Lord, who ask questions and they need to know the answers. And unfortunately, there's no one left really to give them the answers if we don't learn the things that you've put before us and we don't take seriously the lessons that are there in your word and in the world around us that testifies to the glory of your creation. So I pray tonight, as we always do each night, that we take seriously the time that we have and we do everything we can to learn from your word and learn from the things that we're going to study tonight so that we can better answer the world that's questioning you every day. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay. Tonight, we're analyzing the flood. Why are we analyzing the flood? Well, if you've been following the debate between young earth and old earth creationism, a lot of the young earth creationist view depends on a flood. Not just a flood, but it must be a universal worldwide catastrophic flood. Okay? We're going to talk about why, but since we just finished watching three weeks of debates and commenting on it, and I know, like I said, most of you have, after viewing the debate and listening, become probably old earth proponents on your own, I hope, not too much out of any emphasis that I've made. Tonight we're going to look at the young earth view about the flood and why it's so important, and then look at some of the holes in it, and also some of the holes that are in the old earth view, okay? So we'll still take a balanced view. Let's go to the next slide for a second. Young earth creationists, okay? They do not like the idea of a localized flood. Now, if you know what we're talking about, we're talking about the Noah's flood, right, in the book of Genesis. And as I promised you tonight, we're going to do something we haven't done in a while. We're going to actually read like more than two or three verses of scripture. We're going to actually probably read two or three chapters of scripture. Okay. And I want you to, before, I want to do this exercise the right way around. Before we analyze the different viewpoints, I want you first to hear what the Bible has to say. Then I want you to listen to the viewpoints that are expressed. Some of them are on the screen. And I want you to put on some pretty critical thinking caps tonight when we look at this, because I think at first glance, the young earth creationists have a lot of good points to make, and we need to understand them. But let's begin with a little Bible. I'm in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 9. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make room in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in it on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on the earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come with you. 
You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and them. Anybody unfamiliar with this story so far? I think most of us have heard it since the time we were in Sunday school at some point, or we might have heard it somewhere. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. We're moving into a whole other chapter now. Let's hold on to your seats here. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, two of every kind of unclean animal. Look at the detail that God commands here. And also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. You guys notice in the text how many times the Lord is talking about every living creature, all men. He seems to emphasize this point over and over and over. Okay, so start listening for it because you see he's not talking about just a few people. He's talking about all people, all creatures, every living creature. In fact, he repeats that has breath in it. Okay, seems like a pretty broad definition. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rains fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wives and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every kind of wild animals according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the waters. They rose greatly on the earth, key verse here, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had breath of life in it, in its nostrils, died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rains had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down, and on the 17th day, the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day, the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back into the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the month that Noah was 601 years, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. 
Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. Well, congratulations. It's probably the longest scripture reading you've ever sat through where there wasn't something on the screen to keep you going. Well, let's, let's, let's do some definitional work and then dive into science, okay? A young earth creationist, remember, is somebody who believes that the age of the earth is about six to 10,000 years old, that the six literal days of creation are six literal days. And they base most of their theology on the word of God has already been interpreted. We know what it means. Anything scientific that conflicts with that is wrong. There's another explanation. Okay? An old earth creationist comes at it from a different view, which is the earth is probably billions of years old. The universe is 14 billion years old that the days of creation refer to long periods of time that you can read the Hebrew exactly the same way. And they still believe in an inerrant Bible that everything is to be interpreted in consistency with the scriptures, but they just believe that when you find scientific evidence, that's part of the context that you use to interpret things. That we are not perfect in our interpretation so that we may have gotten the Hebrew words incorrect when we first interpreted them, or at least in this case, you have multiple interpretations to choose from. The error may be in the way we chose the interpretation, especially since science and God should not lie because they're both created by God, basically. Okay? His word and science should be consistent. Now, let's talk about why the young earth creationist needs the flood so badly. Look up on the screen. This is uh, Answers in Genesis, leading young earth creation scientists. Well, I don't know if they're scientists. I actually don't know what their credentials are, but they are on the forefront of young earth creationism. Here's their quote. Those who accept... The eons of time, which means old earth creationists, with its fossil accumulation also rob the fall of its serious consequences. They put fossils which testify of disease, suffering, and death before mankind appeared, before Adam and Eve sinned and brought death into the world, okay? Remember, these guys are in a conundrum. They want to believe that the fall of mankind is what brought death and decay into the world. But they also find fossils in the ground and they can't deny that they're there. So they're struggling with what put the fossils in the ground. Their answer is the flood. The flood put all the fossils in the ground, not billions of years. Because if you believe in dinosaurs existing millions of years ago, if you believe in mammoths existing millions of years ago, or whatever it is their timeline is, ice age animals, then you have to admit that they died we all can agree that a fossil is a dead animal, okay? So they have to agree that the fossil died, became fossilized over a long period of time. That means that decay entered the world before the fall of mankind. To them, that's a violation of one of the most sacred tenets of the Bible. We talked about why last week, all right? We also talked about old earth creationists believe that the fall of mankind only affected man's death, not the animal kingdom, not the universe, and not all laws of physics. Okay? If you corner a young earth creation scientist and you ask them when did decay begin, they'll tell you the moment Adam sinned, but they can't explain how the sun was burning before Adam sinned. I mean, burning sun is decay. The second law of thermodynamics, which we covered in detail a number of times, is decay. All of these principles must operate for there to be stars and light and gravity and all the universe and its physical properties depend on there being decay. So they have a huge problem with it. But here's the second reason why they need the flood. Look at this one. Same thing we just kind of talked about. Here's Dr. John Morris, who's at the leading Institute for Creation Research. They're probably like the foremost authority on young earth creationism. The flood accomplished abundant geological work. Eroding sediments here, redepositing them there, pushing up continents, that's all the work of the flood. So when you ask a young earth creationist, how did the Himalayas form? 
they're going to tell you the flood formed them because it moved around so much sediment and so much tectonics were moved around because of the flood that the Himalayas formed. All right. Now, I'm not going to even tell you what an old earth creationist believes. What does your high school geology teacher believe? You remember? Plates. Remember plate tectonic theory? Plates colliding into each other, one going under, one going in, like, you know, the subduction zones and all those things. Remember that? Remember the words induction, subduction, like all those words that scared you on that one exam? It was pop quiz. You probably failed it. And old earth creationists don't disagree. We'll see tonight. They just say, hey, look, science is what it is. We just need to understand what the flood means, all right? So to sum up this slide for you, young earth creationists need the flood because the flood is what put all the fossils in the ground and the flood is what created the Grand Canyon, the Himalayas, the Appalachians, and every other major thing. We need a catastrophic worldwide flood to do those things. Now, by the way, you'll see as we go through it, I'm not so sure that a worldwide flood could do those things. It's not like even if you stipulated and said the flood was worldwide, Let's assume there was enough water to cover the whole earth. Could you have created the Himalayan mountains? I think geology would still say, no, I mean, that's just flooding the water. All right, I mean, as the water's rising, that doesn't mean that it's actually pushing continents around, but we'll get to that. Next slide, please, Alicia, if you could. All right, let's look at why the young earth creationists, aside from why they need a flood, what they say to defend a global flood. Now, remember, a global flood literally means the whole earth is covered with water. And a, an older earth creationist will tell you, their first objection is there's not enough water in the world to cover the whole world. Remember, the water cycle takes water from somewhere and moves it into the clouds and keeps coming down. There just isn't that much water, but we're going to come to that later. Right now, let's just talk about the young earth creationists. And I have to tell you, these are some pretty good arguments. Let's listen to what they have to say. First of all, their first argument is the need for an ark. Why would Noah need an ark if God was not going to flood the whole earth? Couldn't he have just moved? Okay, and let's define what we mean by a localized flood. Old earth creationists, geologists believe that if there was a flood, it flooded the entire Mesopotamian peninsula. That probably means nothing to you, okay? But just think of a huge area in the Middle East, and that's where people say this is the birthplace of the cradle of civilization. This is where civilizations began. And the theory, at least, is young earth creationists will say, so if you guys really believe that it was just a local flood in this area, why didn't Noah just move? Why didn't God just say, hey, get up right now, instead of spending a year building this thing, why don't you just get up and start walking and take a bunch of animals with you? Wouldn't that have been easier than having him build an ark? So why would God make Noah build an ark though? I mean, what's the purpose then? You're saying, so to let people know, hey, I'm building an ark in the middle of the desert, like, and you're all gonna die. Sounds like a major sign of faith. If you're in the desert and he's asking you to build an ark, Okay, and by the way, 450 feet is a big arc. <laughs> that's a huge arc. That's larger than a football field. Okay, that's like one and a half times a football field. It's a big arc, all out of wood. So you gotta have some faith to be able to do that. I mean, if you started walking, you'd probably get pretty far in a year. Well, here's, that's the next one, the need for animals to be on the ark. You know, a lot of people have argued that if it's not the whole earth, why didn't you just have the animals scatter? I mean, we see birds flying south across continents. I mean, we, you know, like, why didn't all the, just the bugs just like start leaving town, you know? And like everybody just vacate. I mean, if, remember, we're only talking about a localized flood. They could all just go to the, like the, the next valley. I mean, we're talking about, it's probably bigger than a, the basin's probably bigger than a valley. But I mean, just, you know, they're, they're talking about like modern day Iraq and some surrounding areas you know, just go to like France for the summer. Well, let's just let's just take a let, let's just take a polar bear. You know, who's used to like eating fish and hanging out on like ice cubes, right? 
how did they get the polar bear into the desert is a question that secularists always like to ask. It's what this text says, right? So you guys have to, I mean, look, secularists, somebody who, do, who believes that your God is a fool is asking you these questions, and we need some answers. Vicki? If, if you believe in a continental connectedness like a Pangea theory, it would have separated millions of years before this happened, okay? At the time, if we go back 4,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 or 12,000 years, whenever you want to put the flood, the continents, based on their drift today, would likely have already been separated, if they were ever one, which I think they probably were, but whether they were or they weren't, they were separated at the time. All right, how about this one? Why have the birds on the, on the ark? That's another one young Earth creationists want to know the answer to. Why would you put the birds on the ark? I mean, they could have just flown south. They could have just flown out of the area. I mean, birds fly fast. You know, they don't need to actually hang out on the ark for a year to survive. They could have just flown to the next area, all right? And remember, this is textual because in the text, he's actually sending out birds who can't seem to find dry land. So these birds must be able to, they're, they're, how far are they flying? They can't find dry land. What's going on? So the, again, the young earth creations are just picking up the text and kind of hitting us over the head with it, saying, tell us about the birds, for example. Does God do things like this? Does God say, I want all the birds in the ark when all the birds could have just flown to South America or north to England? I mean, they could have flown anywhere. We know birds fly all over the place, all right? Let's talk about theology for a second. Young earth creationists always posit that God intended to kill all living creatures, especially mankind, as a result of man's sin. That if it was a localized flood, their objection is, what about the people who lived outside of the area? What about the people who lived in China or the people who lived in like the ice caps? Like why, if it was a localized flood, God's judgment didn't reach them? How do you respond to that? I mean, these are not easy for us to overcome. If you guys who were watching Dr. Hoven a couple of weeks ago in the debate and you guys all decided we're old earth creationists, you have to overcome these things. You have to tackle these questions. Vicki. You are so good. Look down there where it says God's promise of no more floods. The last one, I guess we'll just get there right now. One of the biggest arguments young earth creationists use, if, if it was a local flood and God said, I will not do that again, then every time we have a local flood that kills lots of people, God's breaking his promise, right? That's what the young earth creationists pose. Let me just throw out a generalized thing to help you guys out. You know that our model in this study that we do each Sunday night is to emulate the toughest college class you've ever had. Okay, so we are not going to wimp out any of these answers. And if it takes us three weeks to get through the flood, well, it takes three weeks to get through the flood. I can already tell it's going to take longer than one night. <laughs> you guys are struggling with issues that I think are very relevant. The Mesopotamian Peninsula, let's look back at history and understand what it is. First of all, we know it's likely the location of the Garden of Eden. In the first nine chapters of Genesis, almost every single person of significance that's mentioned lived in a city in the Mesopotamian Peninsula. Most secular historians and anthropologists believe that it's the same region as the cradle of all civilization anyway. You have this congruency between anthropology and the Bible. They agree that this is the birthplace where most things are taking place. This is why the old earth creationists say that people just had not yet migrated out of this area. That for God to destroy all mankind, all he had to do was flood the very valley. I don't want to call it valley or the basin. It's a large area, all right? But let's just call it that area. All he had to do was flood that area. God doesn't need to flood the entire earth to kill all mankind. They're already living right next to each other. And 
And old earth creationists will tell you that God does not need to defy the rules of physics and do something greater than what he needs to do. Why is God, what did he tell Noah? Why is God doing what he's doing? What's the problem? People are evil. What's the solution? Kill them, right? Same solution the Bible has always promised. The wages of sin will always be death. Unfortunately, in this case, God carried it out in a different manner. He saw that man was so wicked that he had to start over. Pretty hard to comprehend, really. But that's what he's doing here. But does he really need to flood the earth to the level of water above Mount Everest to kill the people in the Mesopotamian Peninsula? Now, I'm not saying that I know they all live there. I'm saying that that's what the debate focuses on. A minute ago, we were talking about the Eskimos and the people who lived in China, right? And an old, I'm sorry, a young earth creationist will tell you that it can't be a local flood because that means that people who lived in China did not die. Well, that presupposes that the flood came at a time when people lived in China. If you look at the evidence that geologists come up with for when this flood occurred, it was many thousands of years ago, not just four or 5,000 the way young earth creations would say, probably more like seven to 10 to 15 to 20,000 years ago. Dr. Ross, who's the old earth expert we watched in the debate, pegged Adam's existence on the timeline probably at 50,000 years ago. If you count the genealogy from that point forward, the flood could have been 40,000 years ago, way before ancient Chinese civilization even appeared. In fact, ancient Chinese civilization probably appeared later, if you want to believe in old earth creation's view. So you got to look at these things very carefully. This is a, because the, the arguments they put up on the screen are very good arguments, but they all have a fallacy in them, and I want you guys to find the fallacy, all right? Let's look at another one. Well, how about this one? We just, we just hit that one. The belief that people had migrated beyond Mesopotamia. I mean, they believe, young earth creations believe that it's ridiculous to think that people had not migrated beyond Mesopotamia. Ridiculous? It's not really that ridiculous. What did God tell the people four different times in Genesis to do? What is it? Go and multiply. What did the people not do? What was the first thing he says to Noah when he gets off the ark? You guys need a reminder? What's the first thing that he tells Noah when he gets off the ark? It's not the rainbow. Noah came out together with his sons and his wives and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures move along the ground. He said to him, bring out every kind of living creature that is with you. The birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground. Why? so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. If you look at this historically, there's strong evidence in the Bible that people did not listen to God's command that he had given to Adam and Eve, that he had repeated over time, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. People didn't do it. What were they doing? Hanging out, having sex, no reproduction, just, you know, having a good time, not multiplying, not filling the earth the way he commanded it. Now, in our day and age, that might be controversial, you know? We can do whatever we want. Well, Earth's pretty much filled already, all right? We're in a different world today. But back then, when he was trying to fill the Earth, he was like, you need to do this. You need to actually have some kids and fill the Earth. And people were not having kids. They were not filling the Earth. They are actually still hanging around, okay? He keeps emphasizing this. So some people believe this was important enough to God to keep bringing up over and over. Apparently, man was not listening. So maybe they were still hanging around that whole area. Angela. You know, we keep, let me first say that 
there is problems with the animals existing in the climate. Okay, let's acknowledge that. But what we keep hearing over and over is an echo of a young earth argument, which is the earth was not like it was today. Let me just set this straight because I think that the problem you guys saw when Dr. Hoven, the young earth creationist, was kept arguing, well, we don't know time, the speed of light was constant, we don't know about the earth. Well, you know what? Young earth creationists stand alone on these points about that the earth was different. Every other geologist, secular or not, believe that they could pretty much tell you what the earth was like. They can tell you when the ice ages were, they can show you evidence of them, they can show you how erosion works, they can tell you. I mean, let's take a simple example. A mountain range is formed, okay? Most geologists, I mean, they're not worried about God when they tell you how a mountain range is formed. They're saying like, look, we notice the Hawaiian islands are coming out of the water because volcanoes keep pushing the, you know, now we have islands where none existed. I don't think that a secular scientist who's studying volcanic activity in the Hawaiian Islands is thinking, I have thought of a way to debunk God. He's just thinking, I'm noticing that volcanic activity expands the islands at a rate of two feet per year, or whatever the number is. And it's time where we as Christians, I think, started to understand that there are people in the world who, even though they don't believe in God, do love their science enough that they're not going to make it up or lie about it. So when they study tectonic theory and see that one plate is going down and the other plate is going up and that mountain ranges like the Himalayas, like the Rocky Mountains, I don't know, just mountain ranges are being formed by plates crashing into each other and, you know, some things going up and some things going down, that we shouldn't say, that's crazy theory because the Bible doesn't support that. It's like, they're just discovering what God has done in this world. On top of that, without any attribution to their, to their religion or anything else, they're telling us independently of any debate. They're not even in the debate. They're just telling us, by the way, we're noticing that it takes like two inches per year or whatever it is for these plates to move. So that if you want us to tell you how long it took for this mountain range to be created, we'll just multiply that with these factors and it comes out to like some billion years. And they don't care whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God. They don't care whether it supports your theory or not. They publish that paper and the whole world attacks it or the whole world agrees with it and every scientist who's in that field of geology seems to support it and then we're left with okay so what do we do with it and I think it's hard as Christians because we always want to say that we have all the answers but you know what we don't have all the answers it's okay for us to admit that we don't know the extent of God's creation yet it's okay to say that we don't understand that even if you're a Hebrew expert you still might have interpreted the word incorrectly it's okay we're not we're finite we're we're, we're still trying to you know? So I think these are daunting questions, but I do want to at least point out that let's at least have a framework to operate within. Let's at least agree in our context that scientists are not out to lie to us, that they are trying to do the best they can. And when they tell us that whenever this flood occurred, the earth was not flat. I don't mean the, <laughs> the earth was flat, like, but a young earth creationist will tell you that the flood made the mountains. So you don't need that much water to cover all the mountains. There were no mountains. It was just like a you know, round earth, but flat in its topography. So you only need a little bit of water because it'll just rise above that flat surface and cover everything. Then during the flood, of course, those mountains were created. So when the floodwaters receded, what was once a nice flat topography, now suddenly there were these towering mountains. How that happened, that's hard to explain for them. <laughs> Good, somebody's bringing it up. Ah, you guys are starting to think, I'm getting you going now. What, is the, what does the word say about mountains? He landed on a mountain, what else does it say about mountains? Right, floods went up among the highest mountains. Now, I wanna tell you that 
There's a debate over what the word high and mountain means. This is, a, this is another debate of linguistics in Hebrew. But in Hebrew, according to old earth creationists, anything that's a hill or bigger is a mountain. They don't have words for hills and they just have words for like mountain. Okay, and actually in Semitic languages, that is actually true. Okay, if there's a, something in front of you, it could be a rock pile, that's a mountain. Okay, there's just one word for it. All right, we have all these nice geo, you know, geographic terms that we use, like hill and atoll and mountain and range. They don't have those words. It's one word, mountain. Meaning that it could have been in his local area, whatever the tallest peak was in his area, it covered that. And that, if you're on an ark and you can't see land anywhere, it looks like it's covered everything. All right. I bet you if I put you in the middle of the ocean, I told you all of the land on the earth has disappeared. Could you prove me wrong? I mean, for all you know, there's just water everywhere, okay? Another word is high, high above the mountains, okay? That word does not mean the highest mountain, okay? That word could be interpreted just mean to cover above that elevation. The word high and elevation have almost the same meaning in Hebrew. So again, you've got problems with interpretation. Now, I will tell you that on the young earth side, all those words about every living creature, everything that breathes, all mankind, all creatures, pretty compelling. It's not like we got like one little word there. It's all over the text. So look at their objections. If it was a local flood, we wouldn't need an ark. We wouldn't have to put the animals on it. We wouldn't have to put the birds on it. They certainly know how to fly to dry land. It wouldn't hit all the people in China. We kind of already dealt with that one. It wouldn't catch all the people who'd migrated, same argument. Let's talk about the words of Christ. Christ compares the end of the world to the flood of Noah. And he actually says, for it will be like in the days of Noah. Old earth creationists can explain this one away, but young earth creationists love to champion this one like a trophy. He said that all men will perish in the end like the days of Noah. Anyone have a problem with that? Does it make sense? What do you think? Why doesn't Jesus just say, when I come back, I'm going to just fry you all. I'm going to zap you guys. It's going to be so good, man. It's going to be like one of those bug zappers from Home Depot. Like, because hell is not a flood. Hell is a fire. Like, why does he use the example of Noah, Eric? Okay, so there's that sense of the end is coming and you're not listening, maybe? What's the biggest act God has ever done in the Bible like that would, would like for mankind? Like if you were thinking of the history, you know, we don't think of the flood of Noah very often. You know, we think like if I was asking, what's the greatest Bible story? They're like, well, Moses leading the people out of Egypt. What did Moses do, man? They killed like the firstborn sons of Egypt. God wiped out the whole earth in this flood, you know? This has got to be the biggest recorded thing in history and God is going to do it again. You know, he said, you don't believe in me? Guess what? Wiped out forever, suffering. You're over in the bad place, right? And for people who go, I don't understand how God can do that. That's so harsh. Well, we have a whole CD on that if you need to listen to that CD. How a loving God can someone, you know, send someone to hell, pick up that CD. But the whole point is, the last time God did something like that goes all the way back to Noah. And I think that Eric's point also does make sense that I'm sure Noah, when they're asking him, hey, what are you doing? And he was telling them what God had told him. They all laughed at Noah. When I was young, my mom gave me this Bible Stories Illustrated book, you know those little things? Had the most terrifying image of the floodwaters rising, the door is shut, and people are like banging on the door. Like this is something they give to elementary school people to read, right? You know, like, like evangelism in the 70s wasn't like, you know, harsh, okay? We've softened our approach now that we stopped spanking kids, all right? But back then, when we weren't scared to like beat the crap out of kids to get them to obey and then believe in Jesus right after that, 
there was this picture that just haunted me forever of these people banging on the door of the ark and you could just see the, the door was so big they couldn't get in and they were drowning you know, outside to illustrate. But isn't that exactly what Jesus says? He actually goes on in his discussion. For it will be like in the days of Noah. And he goes on to tell the story when he warned people and nobody listened. And then it was too late. And that's what he's saying, that he's coming back. So I agree with young earth creationists that it's a good example. Jesus spoke it, but what's the reason he did it? It wasn't to say that it, I mean, I agree it wiped out all the people, but that still doesn't give it, Jesus didn't say that it was a universal flood. He's just trying to make the point that it wiped out all the people, which both sides of the debate agree on. Okay, we talked about the waters. We talked about the waters above the mountains. Here's the last one I think is actually pretty good. According to Young Earth Creationists and according to the Bible, it took about a year, at least seven months, for the waters to reside down to some level, okay? That is one heck of a flood if it took a year for the waters to come down. Imagine like the most flooded place you know or you've heard of, and the water stays there for seven months, just hanging out. That implies maybe that it's a much bigger place, they say, that only a worldwide flood that covered all of the mountains of the whole world would take that long to finally drain down, come down. That's another argument. Can you imagine a boat made out of wood, by the way? When they talk about the, like, if you listen to Dr. Hoven, the Grand Canyon formed in the flood, right? Himalayas formed in the flood. Like, everything's formed in the flood, right? This flood had to be so destructive, all right? And I'm trying to think of this little tiny boat, as big as it is in our scale, floating on top of a worldwide flood where there's no land, and it's forming canyons and making mountains, and yet this little Gilligan's Island boat is just kind of, like, floating along the top, you know, and everything's okay, you know, with all the animals, okay? So, you believe in a young earth creationist view. Here's what you also have to buy. These are good arguments. You're on a good start. Some of you might be switching back from the old earth view. You know, I really think that Dr. Hoven was the worst of all young earth people that could have put in that debate. By the way, some people in his own community kind of make fun of him. <laughs> These guys that are in the Institute for Creation Research and the people that are answers in Genesis, they don't even cite him. <laughs> He's kind of the embarrassment of the community, I think, after he lost to Dr. Ross so badly in that debate. But... Let me tell you some other things you have to believe if you believe in an old earth creation, I'm sorry, a young earth creationist view. Where did the fossils come from? Where did the fossils come from? Flood. So what must be alive at the time of the flood? Dinosaurs. If you're a young earth creationist, you have to adopt, in addition to their great arguments that are on the screen, you have to adopt that the dinosaurs were in existence. If you believe the dinosaurs are in existence and if you believe the, the text as true, which all sides of the debate believe, what does that mean with regard to the ark? You have to take a couple dinosaurs on the ark with you. And young earth creations have conceded, and if you want to read it in the Answers in Genesis book, which I have with me, you can see they dedicate a whole chapter to how the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Brontosaurus fit on the ark, okay? All right, I'm just telling, hey, look, I'm trying to be fair. You guys, you guys can cut it down. That means that those things are on the ark. Here's another thing. What was Noah told to do after he built it with wood, if you're paying careful attention to the text? What was he supposed to do? He was supposed to coat it with black tar. Right. What is tar? Actually, the Bible uses a very specific word. It's pitch, which comes from a very specific Hebrew word, which it's a, it's a byproduct of dead stuff, dead stuff which, is a by, which turns into, come on, you guys, you guys put this in your car every day, petroleum. So we know that petroleum is many, is, is compressed what? Fossils, right? So if the flood is the first event to cause the fossils, but Noah was told to coat the ark with pitch, where did the pitch come from? All right, let's, let's, let's bring it down to a point. The arguments that the young earth creationists make that are on the screen are very good arguments. 
We're going to discuss next week in a little bit more detail some of the fallacy of the arguments because if you don't see the fallacy, the argument by itself looks very good. Okay, And we are going to discuss the old earth view next week a little bit more. This is just to give you an idea. But for those of you who, after watching the debate, were solidly old Earth, I just want to shake your foundation a little bit and show you that I think it's a very good argument when a young Earth creationist says, if the flood was not worldwide, why did the birds have to be on the ark? Why did all these creatures have to be on the ark? Why didn't they just move? Why didn't they just you know, fly to the next continent? Because on the ark, you've got to fit everything. By the way, these young Earth creationists, they're very thorough. They start estimating how much waste these, these animals can produce and how much room there is for it and what they were doing with it, how much food you have for them. There is a little sense of what I'd call lunacy that comes into the equation because here's what an old earth creationist would say to all of this. And I'm not saying they're right, but this is a preview to where we're going to be going. The purpose here was to destroy mankind. If they're all, and it's an if, if they're all living in one area, just flood the area and get rid of them. Why are we killing all the animals? Why do you have to kill the polar bear, for example? What does he have to do with man's wickedness? They didn't do anything. They aren't responsible for the wickedness. All right? They're just dying because man is going to die. So an old earth creation will say it's as simple as this. God looked at the entire region in which mankind lived and said, Noah, get everything in that region on a boat because I'm going to flood it, leaving aside all the rest of the world. Okay? Let's go to the next slide for a second so you're not bored of looking at this one. This is a leading young earth scientist. Yes. A lot of the guys in Answers in Genesis cite this guy. So, of course, to be thorough, as lawyerly as I like to be, I went and looked up the original guy they were citing. And funny thing, they don't tell you this quote that he says. <laughs> they, like, cite all his other research, and they make it their own, and they look really proud. But this quote caught my eye. This guy says, the limited flood theories, which means the localized flood theories, okay, that's the old earth, the limited flood theories rest primarily on scientific arguments that present seemingly difficult geological, biological, and anthropological problems for a universal flood. What he's basically saying is, the guys who believe in a local flood seem to have good biological, anthropological, and geological evidence on their side. But that's not going to stop us, all right? Since, and he says in the article, since scientific argumentation is not the subject of this article, I can only suggest that these problems are not insurmountable, although much more study is needed. <laughs> so basically what the young earth guy who's leading all this research is basically saying, it sounds like the old earth people, all they have on their side is biology, geology, anthropology, but we still need to do more study because I'm sure we can come up with an answer for all this stuff. So I guess the way to state it is, they don't have much on their theory. Now you talk about the canopy theory, let's go to the next slide real fast and cover this. Here's some problems with the canopy theory. If you remember what the canopy theory is, the biggest issue of what about the flood is where'd the water come from, okay? We have two sources. One is it fell from the sky. The other one is it came from the fountains of the deep. Dr. Hoven loved the canopy theory. He kept referring to it. This is not an old earth critique, by the way. This is a geologist writing this critique. Here's some problems with the canopy theory. How is water suspended without it falling to earth? If there's that much water in the atmosphere, it has to fall due to gravity. There's just, I mean, unless you want to call God a liar, like gravity is not operating, God's kind of holding it up and twirling it with his finger up there, you know. When you have saturation, it rains. That's it. There's nobody who says that the water cycle has been altered in any way. All right, but let's assume that it is up there. If a canopy holding more than 40 feet of water, which is, you know, about how much it needs to drown the whole earth, were part of the atmosphere, 
it would raise the atmospheric pressure and raising oxygen and nitrogen to toxic levels. If you put, in other words, that much H2O up there, you're gonna have so much O2 and so much nitrogen as a result, it's gonna be toxic on Earth. That's why we don't have that canopy probably, because God knows we would have all died. If the canopy began as vapor, for it to turn into water, it'd have to be heated to such a point that it would have rained boiling water and the earth would have been covered in boiling water, which means that the poor little ship probably would have been boiled to death or whatever, okay? This guy likes to say he, that Noah and the ark would have been poached. A canopy with any thickness, which is, think of how much that water canopy has to be to hold 40 feet of water for the entire earth, would have blocked a great deal of light, lowering temperatures on the earth to points where nobody could have lived. I mean, you just can't mess with the science is what these people are saying. You guys just want to have some invisible canopy of water that just hangs out there? Then you have to tell us that God did miracles in this event as well, which I'm conceding. But you have to believe that the water canopy was supernaturally caused. And not even young earth creationists go that far, at least not the ones that I'm reading. Most of them are just saying that it was there. They don't know how it was there, but it was just there. And yet all of the laws of physics apply. Because what they're trying to do is figure out how much water would have needed to come down on the earth to raise the water level high enough to get this thing, you know, up, you know, on a global amount of water at that much, okay? Because think about it, the Himalayas are something like, how many, how many miles are they high? I mean, if you're going to cover the Himalayas with water and cover the whole earth with water, you got to have a lot of water. Scientists say that we only have 22% of the amount of water it would take to cover the whole earth with water to the point where the Himalayas would be covered and Mount Everest would be underwater by 20 feet the way the Bible. Now to the young earth creationists, that's not a problem because the earth was flat back. They had a little, little bumps, but not like that. That was caused by the flood. But basically the last objection here is any water that exists above the ozone layer would not have been shielded from ultraviolet light. In other words, the light would have pierced it and the water droplets would have started falling. Okay, you can't just have, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is it goes back to my comment about we got to trust science a little. If they're telling us this is just crazy, fine. Let's just say that God did a miracle. We can do that. But that's not what the young earth creationists are saying. They're saying this was just an existence. God created the world this way. And there was a nice canopy just hanging out out there. Last slide, if you will, so we can get through this. We talked about the waters from the deep. Most people agree that this probably is some sort of geyser. But we have to be careful with this. There is just not that much water hanging out underneath the plates. Okay, first of all, if you go down a mile below the plates, it's boiling down there. So if you do have water and it's boiling and you're going to shoot it up through the air, that might come up pretty fast, but it'll probably also boil the, <laughs> the oceans if you're going to just have amounts of water that much to flood. I mean, if you have 22% of the water on the earth, to get above the Himalayas, that means you'd have to add the other 78%. So 78% of your water is coming down boiling from either the sky or from beneath you. That's just not a good thing. You guys are trying to take a bath and adjust the cool water and the hot water just right. Having 78% hot and 22% cold, not good. And you know what geologists come back with and just say, there's just no evidence that we can see in any of the plates that there was this gushing amount of water that just burst open. Okay, so what does all this mean? We're still analyzing this debate between old earth and young earth for a very specific reason. My call has always been, we gotta unite the church together and stop bickering among ourselves before we can take on the people in the real world who are still advancing even crazier theories. But they won't even listen to us until we get our house in order. What this whole science series is doing for us over the summer is to teach us to get our house in order or at least be able to address people with respect who differ from us and engage them on these ideas. To the young earth creationists, letting go of the idea of a global flood has huge problems because now they have to admit that the fossils might be older. 
Now they have to admit that maybe the people hadn't moved beyond that one peninsula, that one area. They have to admit that maybe the Himalayas were caused by millions of years of tectonics. These are difficult things because it all goes back to a young earth creationist saying, I have a 6,000 year time frame. I have to fit everything in it. And there's just some things that don't fit. And like I said, I don't think the geologists are out there saying, let's just throw out there this whole crazy tectonics theory and screw everybody up. I think they're really looking at it saying, we see this is happening. And I like the old earth creationist view, not because they're always right. For all I know, they could even be wrong. But because they're willing to say, my God is big enough to do anything, even if I don't understand it. So to heal the divide, I think we have to open our minds. To heal the divide, we have to understand the arguments on both sides. But I think ultimately, one of them at least embraces science and says, hey, bring it on. Whatever you guys discover, I'll show you how that leads back to God. I don't care what it is. Dr. Ross was just in Europe. We read their report. They were there doing like a bunch of seminars and people in Europe are just climbing all over each other trying to get to the guy. Like, please come to my country. Please come to my campus. We just didn't know that there was scientific proof for this stuff. You know, in a, in a, in a country, in a continent that's like left God far behind because he couldn't answer the questions of the Renaissance. Now they're finally seeing that God can actually speak even through science. Hey, I don't think any of us have all the answers, but it's a mindset question. Are you going to come at it from the, you know, the 10 word answer, you know, CD number one, the, hey, the God I believe in, he's just this, 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 and just shut down the debate. Or are you going to say, hey, you know what? The God I actually worship, every day science discovers more about him and he doesn't lie. He's consistent through and through. So if we discover something scientifically, probably a good bet that God's already, you know, way ahead of the game and knows that we're going to discover that and has already told us about it in his word. One thing that's interesting about the old earth view of this flood is if it turned out that the flood was universal, it really wouldn't affect them much, okay? Because if the water really did fill up the whole earth and somehow that amount of water was there, it might shake their idea of where all that water came from. I mean, that might be weird to them because they believe the laws of physics would be impossible to fill the whole earth with water. But just assume that the old earth creationists were wrong and the flood did really cover the whole earth really doesn't affect much of their whole cosmology anyways. They still believe the Earth is billions of years old. They still believe that fossils were in the ground. They probably would tell you that dinosaurs weren't on the ark, which most of us probably know without even looking. <laughs> um, but they would just kind of believe that, okay, so maybe it did cover a greater area than we thought, but the fossils were already in the ground. The Earth is still billions of years old, and that's just... So God was, you know, God really meant what he said when he said all the Earth, and it isn't just a localized flood. So I guess that even in debating that part of it, or just, just something to keep in mind. You know, the thing that you got to look at is there was, a, there was a road. It's somewhere on the East Coast. And people used to pull up to this road in their car and put the car in neutral. And it was considered like a haunted road or a mystic road or a magic road because they would like put their car in neutral and the car would start going uphill by itself. It was really freaky and people like were really freaked out by this. And people like all over the town, this was like the famous thing to do. You go, you like, they were famous for this. The whole town was this, you know, you go, you start at the end of the road and you just put your car in neutral, take your foot off the brake and it would just start moving up the hill. It wasn't moving very fast, but people would move up the hill, you know? And so they brought in all these experts to figure out, like, what's going on? Like, is there a magnetic force? Is there some sort of weird anomaly? Like, why are the cars going uphill? Well, after the scientists figured it out and came back, they didn't mean to debunk the town and all its myths and everything, but they told them, you're actually going downhill. <laughs> it's just that the way the trees are aligned and the way your vision is and the way everything, it looks like you're going uphill. And if you looked at it, it really did look like you're going uphill. But they actually proved to them that by the elevation and doing a you know, an actual survey, you were actually going downhill. 
bummer for them because they thought they had had, like they discovered something. But the reason I bring that example up is to me, that's kind of what we're doing this. You know, like for you, it might be difficult to understand where the, why the birds have to be there. And we would think like from our limited human perspective, we figured it out. But perspective is always deceiving sometimes, especially where you are. Okay, if you're Noah on an ark in the middle of a huge amount of water, you might as well believe it's the whole earth. And from that perspective, writing from that perspective, it certainly sounds like it might be. But maybe it isn't. And maybe it is. Okay? But one person's cosmology depends on it. The young earth creationists, all of it. The whole thing depends. Because if you take the flood away from them, it's like a little security blanket. If you take that flood away, no mountains, no Grand Canyon, no fossil, all that stuff is going to be a big problem to them. Huge problem. Remember, even the Neanderthal, remember they asked him? He said, oh, the Neanderthal was post-flood when he got this disease and he started getting old, you know. Everything was flood. To the old earth creationists, they're like, look, we believe scientists because we're scientists ourselves, but you know what? If it turns out we're wrong, it doesn't bother us because we still believe the earth and all those fossils were already there, and that's why Noah had some pitch to use. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you're not laughing at us from heaven right now as we try to figure you out. And that you take seriously our earnest desire just to get to know more about who you really are. And I pray that you honor that because we're doing it for a real purpose. We're not doing it for knowledge's sake, Lord, not just to better ourselves or to think more of ourselves. Lord, our purpose is to know you more and to tell other people about you. And Lord, I pray you help us in that task because unfortunately you know more than us. It grieves your heart. People are not listening to us anymore. People have all sorts of answers. People think they're smarter than they are in this day and age, Lord, and they don't really think that you are real anymore. They think that all the scientific discoveries in the world have disproven you and that you're just a joke of the past. And Lord, I know that must grieve your heart because it's your perfect will for this world to discover your son Jesus and find their way back to salvation so that we might be with you forever in heaven. And unfortunately, Lord, I pray that that's just not happening right now. So many people are questioning you, and I am sorry for the church because we're so divided arguing amongst ourselves over who's right and who's a Christian and who isn't. That we're ignoring all the people that are dying every day, and they don't know about you. I pray you heal that debate, Lord. I pray that you give us minds to take on the world. And if nothing else, Lord, maybe the next time somebody questions the church and tries to show that the Bible is a silly book of myths that just can't stand up to scientific scrutiny, that at least... Whatever statements we learn about tonight here, whatever things that we learn more, we can at least respond and show them that the word of God stands up to scientific scrutiny. And in fact, it's more scientific than any other book ever written. Lord, we can't do this alone. I pray you send your Holy Spirit in our lives to do these things. I pray you strengthen us and you give us the words and you do the advocacy in each person's heart. Draw your people close to you, Lord, and let us be the hands and the feet that actually go out to preach the good news. In precious name, amen.